Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Section 55 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Homicide. Part 32. Meyer. With Many Aliases. Part 2. About the end of December 1891, or the beginning of January 1892, the restless Myers sought an interview with Muller, and renewed his importunities to become a confederate in his scheme. He explained that before he went to Cologne, he had insured the life of his docile and subservient tool, Brandt, under the name of Baum, in four companies, for a total of $8,500. He admitted incidentally that in order to complete the first payments, he was obliged to borrow $70. The lender was his friend Gardner, with whom he afterward quarreled. He stated that his plan was to obtain a substitute from a hospital, someone who was nearing his end, palm him off as Baum, and after his death, Mrs. Meyer, personating the wife of Baum, and as such, the beneficiary would claim the insurance. More than that, she would eventually claim a share in the Cologne estate. Subsequent interviews and discussions of the project took place at a beer saloon in Randolph Street, as testified by a witness named Egidio. Several stratagems, in turn, were suggested, but Muller was not convinced of their feasibility and declined to join in undertaking them. Finally, he was persuaded to agree to the plan of substituting a moribund hospital patient in another city, and New York was suggested as a favorable field of operation. During the preparation for the execution of this artifice, the conspirators, as the evidence showed, had rehearsals of the parts they were to play. Brandt was taught to feign excessive nausea, the poor fool being under the impression that that was his part of the play, and that when the time came for a corpse, it would be provided. Mrs. Meyer is said to have exhibited considerable ability in her portrayal of typical widowhood, and in exemplifying her acting when, as the widow of Baum, 
she would appear before the insurance companies in the somber habiliments of mourning. In concurrence with the general plan, Meyer escorted his wife and Ludwig Brandt to the house of a minister in Chicago, and they were then and there married, as already noted, Mrs. Meyer assuming the name of Emily Rather. Meyer signed the certificate as a witness of the bigamous marriage under a fictitious name. Immediately after this comedy, arrangements were made to assign the policies on Brandt's life to the pretended wife. Brandt and Muller were to precede Meyer and the woman on the way to New York and to pave the way in that city for the denouement. By this time, Meyer seems to have felt sufficiently sure of his control of Muller to unburden his purpose plainly. In handing him the railway tickets and money for preliminary expenses in New York, and in giving instructions, he said, in reference to Brandt, on the train, I want you to give him a certain preparation which I will hand you. I believe we might just as well do away with Brandt. There was no uncertain sound about this. The inveigler had done his work so well that Muller by this time was virtually a particeps criminus. Meyer wrote to a drugstore in Chicago and bought a package of tartarized antimony, tartar emetic, which he handed to Muller with instructions for its use. The latter asked what it was, and Meyer, in reply, gave the German name, Breck Weinstein, and said that if given in small doses, repeated according to his directions, it would produce a condition so closely resembling that of diarrhea or dysentery as to deceive the physician who would be called in attendance. He also gave Muller a bottle containing sulfate of morphia. Brandt and Muller left for New York February 25th. They hired unfurnished rooms at 320 East 13th Street and bought some scanty furniture. Brandt, under the name of Baum, addressed letters to the insurance companies announcing his change of residence, in accordance with instructions before leaving Chicago. On the arrival of Meyer and his wife, March 4th, the woman saw at a glance that such forlorn lodgings did not comport with the presumable style of a gentleman who was paying for $8,500 of insurance. More furniture was therefore purchased, a piano was rented from Gordon Brothers, and something in the way of home comfort and ornamentation added. About the 7th or 8th of March, they were ready to begin the dosing process. The co-conspirators went to an apothecary's in the neighborhood of 7th Avenue and 42nd Street, and on a prescription for Meyer, signed Otto C. Stern, M.D., obtained some croton oil. Then followed the dismal story of torture, day by day, of the poor victim, and his sufferings from chronic antimonial poisoning. A young medical practitioner, Dr. Minden, of St. Mark's Place, was called in to prescribe for what was alleged by the messenger to be dysentery. The symptoms apparently corroborated the statement, and Minden prescribed opium and bismuth and appropriate diet. Regarding it as a case of dysentery and not suspecting poisoning. The medicine was procured but was not given, while his food was impregnated with antimony. The fiend who administered it 
being undisturbed by the terrible distress he was witnessing hour by hour. Brandt always believed that he would be brought back to good health by Dr. Meyer after the deception of Dr. Minden had been carried to sufficient degree. Toward the 25th of March, Meyer became impatient of delay and concluded to finish his murderous work. On that day, he went to Jersey City and procured some arsenic, informing Muller on his return of what he had done and his purpose to substitute the arsenic and hurry up the job. On the night of the 30th, the wretched sufferer died. Dr. Minden was called in, and after examining the emaciated body, he gave the required certificate of death, in which the cause assigned was chronic dysentery. Curiously enough, Dr. Minden was somewhat of an expert in antimonial poisoning as he had practiced among the lead workers of Colorado, but Dr. Meyer was skillful enough to deceive him. Two days after Brandt's death, he was buried in Evergreen Cemetery. The pretended widow donned the sable garments of mourning, and after the funeral, notice was sent to the insurance companies. A representative of the Washington Life, Mr. Tierney, who was also a notary public, called to take the acknowledgments that were necessary, and while completing the papers, his sympathies were so strongly aroused by manifestations of grief, desolation, and despair on the part of the afflicted widow that he soothed her with a promise to facilitate the collection of the money that was due to her. On the day appointed, the woman, heavily draped in solemn black, called at the office of the Washington Life in company with Muller, and after presenting evidence to justify the payment of the claim, a check for $3,000 was handed to her. Meyer was waiting outside, and in a few minutes the check was in his grasp. His wife endorsed it. They were identified at the bank by the complacent landlord of 320 East 13th Street, and the money was paid. On the next day, the same game was played at the office of the New York Life, with the same result, a check for $1,000 being paid to the claimant. On the following day, the conspirators called at the agency of the Aetna Life, but there, instead of realizing the result of eight or nine months' preparation, they struck a snag. The check had not been forwarded by the company from its Hartford office, as the company at first suspected all was not regular, owing to the occurrence of death so soon after insurance. But the check was forwarded soon afterward. They never called for that check. The next day they presented themselves at the office of the Mutual Life Insurance Company and were introduced to the hospitable attentions of Mr. D. G. Gillette, a born detective and unsurpassed cross-questioner. What followed is thus told in Mr. McIntyre's address. The defendant introduced the co-defendant, Mrs. Meyer, as the wife of Gustav Baum. He said he had come there to help her. Mr. Gillette looked at him and said, Who are you? What relation do you bear to this woman? Defendant said, I am only a friend. What is your name? asked Gillette. He replied, my name is William Richter. 
Where do you live, said Gillette? I live in Cincinnati. What street? 458 Main Street, in that city. Write it down, said Gillette, upon a piece of paper. A piece of paper was handed to him, and he signed the name William Richter, and the address is that of 458 Main Street, Cincinnati. Mr. Gillette then said to the woman, Sign your name. She signed the name of Amelia Baum. Where did you come from, said Mr. Gillette, in the presence and hearing of this defendant? She said, I came from Denver, Colorado. I only married my husband on the 11th day of February, and here I am a widow in that short time. Well, tell me something about the people that you know in Denver, Colorado. Tell me the name of a single soul that you know there, said Gillette. She stammered and hesitated and said that she couldn't remember. Gillette said, Tell me the name of a single street in the city of Denver, Colorado. She couldn't tell the name of a single street. Gillette, looking at her and the defendant standing in close proximity to her, said, Madam, you say you were married on February 11th, and this is the 6th or 7th of April. Why, madam, you are about to become a mother. You are in an advanced state of pregnancy. How do you account for that? Married but two or three months.